0: How to Play, Episode D, The Top 50 Strategy Games. Hello and welcome to the How to Play podcast. This is your host, Ryan Sturm, coming to you from beautiful Buffalo, New York. This episode was recorded on June 20th, 2010. This is Episode D. And today, we're going to talk about the top 50 strategy games. In my quest to promote my philosophy of play great games more often, I'm going to give you a brief overview, in my opinion, of the top 50 strategy games as ranked on BoardGameGeek as of June 20th, 2010. Now, this is not normally what we do here at How to Play, if this is your first time listening to the show. Usually, I take a great game and give you a game explanation of that game, teaching you how to teach the game and how to play it. And so if you're interested in that, go back, look at our catalog there at www.howtoplaypodcast.com and look for one of those game explanations. We've got 16 great ones for you to choose from. But every once in a while, I like to do something a little bit different. And that's what those lettered episodes are all about. And that's what's happening today. Now, I only pick games for how to play that I love or at least really like. And so I never really get to talk about my general opinions on certain games. And so that's what I wanted to do today. I made a point to try to play a lot of these games that are here in the top 50. I own a lot of them and I've played most of them. So I thought it might be useful to hear an overview of these different games and one man's opinion of them. Now, this is a great collection of 50 games. If a game is on this list, it has a huge following and many supporters, of course. But I personally don't love all the games on this list. And I'm looking forward to talk about some of the popular games that I don't like and why not. You know, hopefully I won't alienate some of you wonderful How to Play listeners. But before we get into that top 50, let's talk a little bit about this list. This list comes from the rankings at BoardGameGeek.com, where hundreds and thousands of users have rated all sorts of different games. And there's always been this list, and it's always a, a point of great contention of where games are ranked in comparison to one another, in particular, what the number one game is. And very recently, as in just a few days ago, Board Game Geek divided all of its games into subcategories. So now, instead of a main games page, instead of being able to see all the games and their rankings in accordance to one another, you can specify a category of games that you're interested in, and see a list of games in that category. The categories that are there, I don't know if I remember all of them, but we have strategy games, family games, kids games, abstract games, thematic games, and war games. Or again, you can still just look at all the games as a whole. Now there's a lot of mixed reaction to this, and I'm not really sure why. Being able to look at a subset of games will give you some more information. It really allows you to compare apples to apples if you're only interested in a certain type of game. For example, I originally was going to just look at the top 50 and analyze the top 50 in general. But now that I'm able, I can just look at a list of the top 50 strategy games, which is the genre I'm most interested in. It takes out for me some of those games that I have no experience with, or really no interest in, such as Advanced Squad Leader and, and the like. Being able to look at just games in one category really allows you to explore games more specific to the type of games that you enjoy. Of course, the problem with this comes in defining these categories and how you divide the games up into those different categories. In fact, the most troublesome category is the category that they've called thematic games. Now, I can see what they're getting at here. If you look at the games on this list, a lot of them were previously defined as American-style games or even Ameritrash games, a label that I don't particularly care for. The games they're trying to define here are games that are really looking at trying to tell a story through the game, and not really as worried as having elegant and particularly well-balanced mechanics or gameplay. And they don't worry too much about randomness. Take, for example, games like Battlestar Galactica or Arkham Horror or Descent. These are games that are almost more experiences at times in games and sometimes include a touch of a role-playing element. And I, I personally don't care much for the games on this list. But it's a bit of a stretch for me to say, oh, I guess I don't really like thematic games. Wait a second, I like thematic games. I like Agricola and Age of Empires and Age of Steam and Shogun. These aren't thematic games. I think all four of those games have particularly strong themes, whether it's farming or discovering the new world or trains or or samurai warfare. These games aren't thematic games. Well, I, I think they still need to come up with a better title for this category. And you also have issues where there's crossover games where a game would fit into two categories. Which games get two categories and which don't? Some of them do have two categories and some do not. I mean, who is the grand poobah who gets to decide, this is a family game, this is not a family game? It seems like a, a pretty difficult job. And by dividing the games up like this, there's some interesting consequences. There's some good things, like I see when you click on family games, you see some really great games getting shown some respect, like Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride, that originally in the normal all-the-games list would, would get knocked down to about 50 or 60. These are fantastic games, but when you go to that family games ranking, you can see those games really rise to the top. I'm sure fans of abstract games and war games and those previously discussed thematic games are are excited about that just as well. Their favorite games that normally get buried deep into those rankings go to the top where they belong in that particular category. Now as a negative, I think about could this possibly be a hamper on players of one genre getting interested in and learning about or trying games of other genres. Uh, For example, a lot of war gamers got interested in some of the different Euros from seeing some of the top games on those lists and wanting to try it. Or, for example, myself who looked at that list and saw games like Hive and Yinch and normally wouldn't try an abstract game, but because they were so high and so well respected, I learned about them and, and gave them a try and really loved those two games. Then there's the issue, you've got these lines, that where do they get crossed? For example, one of the really fine lines for me is is the line between strategy games and abstract games. You've got a lot of the games in that strategy game list that are virtually abstracts, that make the list because, you know, Reiner Knizia... He designed this great abstract strategy game and then he threw a dart at his ancient civilization's dartboard and then he put a picture on the box of of ancient Egypt and somehow now this is a strategy game and not an abstract game. There's the old cliche, pasted on theme. But there's some of these games in this strategy game lineup that really have no theme and could really, for all intensive purposes, be called abstract games. Now you have a lot of people who will claim that all games are actually abstracts. Well, I I don't agree with that. I think in any game where you find a relationship at all between the gameplay or the mechanics and the theme of the game, that that game has a theme. And that theme is part of what makes the game great. To call a game like Agricola or Age of Steam an abstract game because, oh, they wouldn't really have to be pigs. They could just be cubes and you could get the cubes. Somehow, I think if the game had undefined white, black, and brown cubes, instead of defining them as animals in the game Agricola, I think the, the game experience itself would definitely suffer. Now, if you're interested in this topic at all about the role of theme in games, Mark Johnson on his show Board Games to Go, episode 104, discussed this with his guest Greg Pettit, and Greg had this great theory about the two ways that theme is used in board games. Theme is used as metaphor, and theme is used as narrative. And this is just a fantastic episode. So you need to go, uh, if you have any interest in this topic about the role of theme in games, and they discuss how it's used in some popular games, it's really a fantastic episode. It goes into the role of themes in some of these popular games and gives your brain a ton to chew on and really think about how games really work. But let me just say, I think that this division into subcategories of games, I think it's a great idea. I think it needs some tweaking and fine-tuning, and we'll definitely see that over the years as this evolves. But enough about that, let's get to this list, the list that I have chosen to look at, the subcategory of strategy games, of the top 50 strategy games. First, some general observations. Let's look at games that are not here. Some of the games that aren't in this top 50 strategy games are some lighter games that are some really great games. But as I said, some of these get their due in sort of the family game section. You won't see Ticket to Ride or Settlers of Catan or Carcassonne or Citadels or Colosseum or Alhambra. One classic that I was sad isn't still in the top 50 of strategy games is Acquire. Acquire is a wonderful game. Definitely left its imprint on board games today. A few other great games that I kind of wish made the list... Union Pacific. I think Union Pacific would be there if it was more available. I think there's been rumors of a reprint, maybe a retheming that's been coming out for years. We'd love to see that. Reef Encounter didn't make the list. I think that has something to do with the, the rule book included with the game. It's hard to get your head wrapped around. Santiago, another good one that didn't make the list. Some of the auction games, it's interesting. The auction games, strategy game, well, they're there. They're just a little lower on the list. There is one very notable auction game that is on the list, and we'll get to that. But two that are missing are Modern Art and Medici. And lastly, what about Magic? Magic the Gathering. Magic the Gathering is a breakthrough game. It has fantastic gameplay. It always gets beat up at Board Game Geek because of the collectability, which can't be denied. But if you've really dived into Magic, you know that there are few games that can top the great strategy experience that is Magic. I think it's like 123rd or something overall. It, there's a collectible category, but somehow Magic is 4th in that category, which is really a shame. Next, I thought it was interesting looking at the release date of some of these top 50 games. I was you know, so interested because in my 3rd grade class, I'm a 3rd grade teacher for those of you that don't know, looking at this, deciding how to share it with you, and I, I said, I should make a tally chart. So I did. I, I'm an expert in that. Uh, I made a tally chart. I, I found the data landmarks, the mean, median mode, the range. I should have made a pictograph. Pictograph would have been fantastic. I could have done... Anyways, I'm getting off, off topic. The results of my tally chart, uh, when we looked at the top 50 strategy games, we see only three games from the entire decade of the 80s two of which just made the list right at the bottom. Six of the 50 games are from the entire decade of the 90s, and the other 41 are all from the last 10 years. And if we look at that, there's definitely a skew towards the last five years. The median point of the data is 2006, and the mode is 2009, with nine of the top 50 games coming from 2009. Here I thought 2009 wasn't really a great year for games. You know, I still don't think it really was, and I I think time will tell. I think a lot of these games, you know, you get this flash in the pan every year. We'll get a bunch of 2010 games in there next year. Some of them will stay, but I think most of these 2009 games won't be there next year. It'll be interesting to see. Obviously, more recent games do have an advantage, but are games really getting that much better? Are games four times as good as they were pre 2000 I actually think, for the most part, they are. I think our hobby is developing exponentially, you know, with the internet. Game mechanics are developing and evolving at an incredible rate, just like everything else. This amazing global share of information that we have going on now. Which, you have to realize, that makes it an even more impressive feat for all of these games that are on this list, pre-2000, to still be there in the top 50. It's important to remember and consider how these rankings are measured. The scale for measuring, when you go in at BoardGameGeek and you want to rate it, and anyone can do this, if you haven't done it yet, I really suggest it. Not only is it fun for you to see your own ratings, but you're also making a contribution to the greater community so that people can see the overall opinion of board game players around the world. But getting back to the scale, the scale for measuring is how often do you want to play them? The number 10 is, I always want to play this. We'll never turn down a game and never expect this to change. And number one is, defies description of a game. Will not play ever again with 5 being okay game, take it or leave it. But it's all focused on not how well you think the game is designed or how important you think the game is. It's all about do you want to play it in the future. And this can be part of the reason we see more skewing towards newer games as well because some of the older games just get played out and you don't want to play them anymore. Take Settlers, for example. But I tend to want to rate games based on the game impact or the importance in the evolution of board games. And I have to remind myself that this is not how the games are rated. Which, when I see Settlers of Catan not in the top 50, and you know, it, it definitely makes me wince just because I know what Settlers of Catan did for board games. But keep that in mind, that these rankings come from the general public rating them based on how much they want to play them in the future. And with that, let's get to our top 50 strategy games as ranked by the members of Board Game Geek. For each game, I'm going to sort of try to boil it down within about 10 seconds, give you the basic theme of the game and the mechanics. If I played the game, which I've played most of them, probably 40 of them, I'm going to give you my rating of the game from 1 to 10 based on how much I want to play it in the future and explain why I personally like or dislike the game. If I haven't played it, I'll tell you as much as I know about the game, and explain why I haven't played it, and if I'm interested to play it in the future. So, this is a very opinion-based show. You are welcome to disagree or agree with these things, and discuss these opinions there at the Guild. And all these opinions are based in my own personal bias and experience with games. If you don't know much about the games that I like, if you haven't listened to the show a lot, my favorite games are deep strategy games that give you a lot to dig into with a decent learning curve and multiple strategies. I like theme, but gameplay is more important to me than theme. And I really love it when a game has integrated theme into the mechanics. I like interaction in games, and games with lots of little difficult decisions. So, from that, you can tell that my preference is typically for heavier Euro-style games. And if that matches with your own game tastes, you may agree with my opinions. If not, you may want to think about picking all the games on this list that I don't like. Alright, enough introduction. Can we just get to the top 50? Here we go. Board Game Geeks Top 50 Strategy Games. Number 50 through 41. Number 50, Notre Dame. Notre Dame is a game about card drafting and resource management. Each turn, you're going to have to decide from different actions to take. And the actions get cumulative if you choose certain directions. Like if you decide to get money, you get better and better at collecting money. If you decide to get points, first time you get one point, then two points, and then three points. And what makes this game great is that you can never get everything that you want. You can't run out of cubes to play, you can't run out of money, and you can't get plagued by these rats that are ever building this rat threat. And all at the same time, you're trying to manage to score points somehow. I rate Notre Dame a 10. I love Notre Dame. I've played it over 100 times. Most of it I've played online. It's a great online game. You can knock it out in about 15 minutes on BSW. But I've also enjoyed it in person. It's a game you can just play again and again. You can tackle it a lot of different ways. And it's definitely one of my favorite games. Number 50, Notre Dame. Number 49, Vasco da Gama. I've never played Vasco da Gama. I don't know much about it. All I know is that Tom Vassell threw it off the top of a building. Uh, But there was a big hullabaloo about that, and so I definitely want to play Vasco da Gama, getting resources, turning them into victory points, your typical standard Euro game. But it's gotten a lot of positive buzz, and I'd love to give it a go. It's number 49, Vasco da Gama. Number 48, 1830, The Game of Railroads and Robber Barons. This is the seminal 18xx game. And this game all about investing in a railroad, building up that railroad company, and then you can start another railroad company. You can also invest in your opponents' railroad companies at the risk of them selling all their stock and leaving you with that railroad company. It's a very dynamic game. Has this storytelling aspect where you start with these little baby train companies and you build and build and build to become rich at the end of the game. It's a beautiful game. It was designed in 1986, but still considered one of the top games. I rate 1830 a 9. Wonderful Game Experience, number 48, 1830. Number 47, Civilization. Civilization is a sprawling game about civilizations. It was designed in 1980, this is the classic version, and expanded by the game Advanced Civilization. It's generally recommended to be played with 7 or 8 players, and it's a 10 to 12 hour experience, but an experience not to be matched by many other games. A lot of other games have tried to boil it down to a 3 hour or 2 hour game, which you really just can't get the same experience. I rate Civilization a 7. I think it's a great game experience, but not something that you can do all the time. Unfortunately, this game is out of print, though with a lot of these games that are about 30 years old, you could definitely work yourself up a copy with some fan-made materials. Number 47, Civilization. Number 46, Battle Line. Battle Lines by Reiner Knizia. It's a two-player game. It's a remake of an older game called Schoten Totem. And I do own Shoten Toten. I do not own Battle Line. This game is a two-player game where you're both trying to win seven different stones and you're playing cards on a different side of the board, trying to play a combination of three cards stronger than your opponents in order to win that stone or win that battle in Battle Line. It's an interesting game that I got on the recommendations of a lot of people. It's a great two-player game. I rate it a 5. We'll play it once in a while, but not really one of our favorites. That's number 46, Battle Lion. Number 45, Automobile. Automobile is a 2009 game from Martin Wallace. It's all about getting your designs for your automobiles and trying to sell those automobiles without a lot of wasted product because you get negative points if you're unable to sell them. Is a real mishmash of different mechanics here. I rate this game a 4. I, I didn't care for it. It just seemed like the mechanics, the whole thing, didn't really fit together. And just the whole process, you do it four times. It just never really seemed fun to me or exciting. You go through these different processes of choosing your models and collecting cars and then selling the cars. A lot of people like this game. It just didn't do it for me. That's number 45, Automobile. Number 44, In the Year of the Dragon. This is by the same designer of Notre Dame and contains some of the same trying to survive with not a lot of resources that you have in Notre Dame. You see these horrible events that are about to occur, and this game's all about disaster management trying to choose the right resources or the right people that are going to help you survive all of these different disasters. I rate this game an 8. I find it a lot of fun. Sort of the planning element and trying to get those correct. People at the right times in order to manage those disasters. I think it's a very unique game. There's not a lot of games like it. It should get a lot of credit for that, and I think it's very replayable. So that's number 44 in the Year of the Dragon. Number 43, Amon Ra. Amon Ra is another Reiner Knizia design. The heart of this game is the bidding for the provinces. There's different provinces, all with different attributes, and you are bidding on these different provinces, trying to get the one that's gonna help you the most. Then you'll improve these provinces with pyramids and farmers, and then a really interesting thing is that those pyramids stay on for the second half of the game. So when you auction the second time, these provinces have a lot of different values, which makes the auction element very interesting. I rate this game a seven. I like it, It, it's very well-balanced. It's interesting and engaging. There's not really a lot of theme in there with your typical Canizia game. And I thought the gameplay was good, but I don't don't find it particularly just that exciting. So that's Amon Ray, number 43. Number 42, Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation, Deluxe Edition. Uh, This game is really sort of advanced Stratego. You've got the hobbits on one side, you've got the baddies on the other side, and you're trying to get Frodo to the opposite side of the board. I rate this game a five. It's an okay game. I don't seem to get so excited about it. I don't quite understand why it's as highly ranked and enjoyed as it is. I think a lot of it has to do with that Lord of the Rings theme, which for me, I actually found it harder to get to the table with some people because it was Lord of the Rings. I also have to say I'm not too excited about these deluxe editions. When you have games that are just perfectly fine in their regular normal size to quadruple the size and make them deluxe editions for these little 20-minute games. I'm just, I'm not really a fan of that. You can see the same sort of thing that had happened with Hey, That's My Fish. Can't I just get Hey, That's My Fish for $20? It's a 15-minute game. Come on. Anyways, that was 42, Lord of the Rings, The Confrontation. Number 41, Taj Mahal. Another Reiner Knizia game. I should count how many Knizia games are on this list. Taj Mahal is another bidding game. Um, in amun Ray, you're bidding with markers and you're you're placing them on the province on different bid values. Taj Mahal is a very different bidding game in that you have a hand of cards and that you are playing cards with different icons on them in order to stay in the bid. And once you have more icons than another player, then you can withdraw from the auction and win that one or two aspects and be able to place one of your palaces in those provinces. And then in different auctions, you're trying to get your palaces in a line, trying to get multiples of the same kind of goods that you get from the provinces. It's a very original auction mechanic. Instead of bidding money or anything, you're playing these cards, and these cards themselves are a resource. They're very limited. I rate this game an 8. I only had a chance to play it once, but I loved it so much I picked it up, and I can't wait to get it to the table more. That's number 41, Taj Mahal. Number 40 to 31. Number 40 is Samurai. Samurai was designed by, guess who, Reiner Knizia. Uh, Samurai is a little bit different though. It is a tile lane game and there's these cities on the board and your lane tiles in order to gain control of these cities and get the tokens. I rate this game a 6. It has pretty interesting gameplay as you're laying down these tiles trying to take the control of these cities, and one player will lay one and threaten you in another area, and another player will threaten you in another area, and you have to prioritize and decide where you're going to go. Uh, this is pretty much one of those strictly an abstract game with a picture of a samurai on the box. But the gameplay is really good. The winning condition is a little bit odd, as it is in a lot of the Konitzia games, but it's a pretty decent game. Number 40, Samurai. Number 39 is Indonesia. Indonesia is a game that I have not played that I am just dying to get a chance to try. I've been told that if you like Age of Steam, you're really going to enjoy this game. This one's kind of a little bit harder to get a hold of as it's one of those splotter games which have smaller print runs so they're a little bit more expensive, a little bit harder to find. Um, but I have some friends who have it and I'm really looking to try this one out. It's supposed to be a great pick up and deliver game. Number 39, Indonesia. Speaking of splotter games, number 38, Roads and Boats. Another one that I haven't had the four to eight hours in order to try out. Uh, this one gets a lot of buzz. It's one of the older games on the list, at, at 1999. This is a longer game, and it's very expensive. One of the reasons that I haven't been able to get it to the table. That's number 38, Roads and Boats. Next is the 37, Hansa Teutonica. This is sort of the hot game right now. I did get a chance to play this a few months ago, and I can see why it is such a hot game. You are basically laying cubes in order to either score victory points by making connections or gaining a special action. And to start, you're basically only laying two cubes, and you need to dominate one of these routes of four. So you have to kind of really decide where you want to drop those cubes, to tr- which actions you want to go for, or which routes on the board you want to try to get. It leads to a lot of difficult decisions. Not a lot going on as far as theme here, but the gameplay is really superb. Number 37, Hansa Teutonica. I haven't rated it yet. I'd probably rate it a a 7 or an 8. It's hard to tell without more plays. One criticism is that one of the actions is a little bit too powerful, uh, but I have to play it a little bit more to check the balance of the game. That's number 37, Hansa Teutonica. Next, number 36, Space Alert. Space Alert is notorious as the cooperative game with the CD soundtrack, with this crazy computer voice, something like that. I haven't heard, I've only heard legends of that computer voice. Haven't had a chance to play it yet. It's not something I'm really seeking out and trying to learn. I'm not a big cooperative game fan, and this seems like more of a, a experience sort of game. I'm actually surprised to see it in the strategy game category. Just doesn't seem up my alley. Number 36, Space Alert. Next game seems up my alley. I haven't had a chance to try, and that's number 35, Struggle of Empires. This is a Civilization game by Martin Wallace. It's a longer game. It seems a little bit harder to get now, but it's still very well regarded. I need to give it a shot before I can give you some more informed feedback about number 35, Struggle of Empires. Number 34, Imperial... 2030. Imperial is sort of a strange cross between like a risk style game and an investment style game such as Acquire or 18xx. You're basically investing in different nations while they participate in conflict, and you're trying to profiteer, um, make money off of the wars that are going on. So unlike in a traditional world conquest game, you don't really care about who wins or loses. You just care about trying to make the most money from this war. And that's why I don't like this game. That theme is just a little bit too evil for me. When, when you just really think about actually what you're doing, it's really sort of an awful idea behind it. It's a decent game. Um, it's fine. But again, the Risk World Conquest type game doesn't appeal to me. I rate this game a 3. It's just really not my cup of tea. That's number 34, Imperial 2030. And this is much like the regular Imperial, except it's sort of set in the future, so there's few modifications So just make it a bit different than the standard game. Next, number 33, Antiquity. So this is our third Splatter game. This is another city-building, civilization-building type game. I have not played this game. Looking forward to giving it a try. So this is another civilization-building game by Splatter, and that's number 33, Antiquity. Number 32, Wallenstein. Wallenstein is designed by Dirk Henn, and it is very famous for the unique cube tower it utilizes. This is sort of a combat game. You're trying to get territory on the board, somewhat like Risk, except instead of using dice to resolve battle, you throw your armies into a cube tower, and whoever comes out are the survivors. I haven't played this particular version. I have played Shogun, and I, I love it to death. So I, I rate this game an 8. This is a different version, more of a Middle Ages theme. And there's talk that a lot of people prefer this map over the Shogun map. Wait, didn't I just say I don't like World Conquest, Military Conquest games? Alright, maybe it's the Cube Tower that, that does it for me. Good fun. Check it out. Number 32, Wallenstein. Next is a very popular game, number 31, Small World from Days of Wonder. Small World is a game about a small island, and players take turns taking control of armies and marauding these armies across the board, and you get points at the end of each round for how much territory you are still in control of. I give this game a 5. I can take it or leave it. Sometimes this game seems to drag on a bit too long for what it is. It's a little bit light for my taste. Taking your turn, moving across deciding when to go into a new army. I I just did not find the gameplay that engaging. It's sort of a light military conquest type of a game, and that sort of a theme or gameplay doesn't really appeal to me. It has some very fervent fans. A lot of people really like the, the combinations between the descriptions and the characters. You can end up with, you know, jumping unicorns or... Happy kangaroos as your armies, or I'm pretty sure those aren't right, but that's basically the idea. You can have those things and they have different special abilities. And that leads to a lot of the appeal and humor and interactive nature of the game. And that's number 31 Small World. <music> number 30 to 21. Number 30 is Teach You. Tichu is a trick-taking game, a little bit different than traditional trick-taking games, because you can lead different combinations of cards. Instead of just leading a single card, you could lead, say, a straight, and someone would have to lay a higher straight in order to take the trick. Or someone could lay a full house, and you'd have to lay a higher full house to take the trick. This is my favorite card game. I rate this a 9. I just love it to pieces because of the flexibility you get from playing the different kinds of hands. It also is a fantastic partnership game. You really need to read and work together with your partner in a way that not a lot of other games succeed in making a partnership-style game work. Best card game you can find. That's number 30, Teach You. Next, we have number 29, Rune Wars. This is a very new game, released in 2010. The only game released in 2010 that's on the list. So there must be a lot of buzz and excitement about this game. One of those humongous games by Fantasy Flight. Tons of little plastic minis in it. And basically, you're building an army and attacking other players' armies. That sort of style of game. I've not played the game, but if you're into that sort of genre of game, of, of developing a fantasy army and attacking your opponents, this is going to be right up your alley. It's a longer game, one that isn't particular in my, what's the word I'm looking for? Henhouse? Wheelhouse, that's what I'm looking for. It's not in my wheelhouse of types of games, so I'm not looking to play that one anytime soon, but I know it will have its fans. Number 29, Rune Wars. Next, number 28, Chaos in the Old World. We have another very brand spankin' new hot game that's come out just on fire and a lot of people love this game. I've had the chance to play this game a few times and have not elected to take that opportunity simply because this is an example of a game where the theme completely turns me off. This game is about sort of demon armies building and smashing into each other and build up this army of demonic forces and and killing each other. And sort of the theme of of the demons and the reigns of pus and everything like that, it sort of gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'm not really interested in... in, playing Demon Armies. I'm sure I'll probably get cajoled into it at some point. And I know that everybody who plays it has had a really great time with it. Even people who aren't really fans of the theme. That's number 28, Chaos in the Old World. Number 27, 1960, The Making of the President. This is one of a series of two-player games that are card-driven. In this particular one, you're trying to become the president. In the 1960 presidential election, we have Nixon versus Kennedy, and you're playing cards to gain influence in the different states. I have not played this one, as I don't play a lot of two-player games. I did pick up the shorter version of this game, 2008 Campaign Manager, and it's a very streamlined, smaller edition of this game. It lasts about 30, 45 minutes and that's the Obama versus McCain game. My wife and I have tried that, and we've had a really good time with it. And we'd probably enjoy 1960 as well if it wasn't for the length. You're playing a two-hour game. Just don't have the time to get into that quite as much. But if you're interested in in politics, enjoy two-player games... This is a game for you. Number 27, 1960, The Making of the President. Next, number 26, Endeavor. Endeavor is one of the latest and sort of a very popular theme of discovering the new world. This game came out with a lot of buzz about it, and I gave it a try, and I rate it a 6. I, like a lot of the other people who played this game, Found it not really to offer anything new. It has a lot of familiar elements. You're building buildings to gain special advantages. You're trying to acquire tokens, you're trying to sail off to these different lands to establish connections and gain points with these different areas. The game just fell a bit flat for me. I didn't find the gameplay particularly engaging, and and I'm not really seeking out a second game of this one, though I know, again, this one has its fans. That's number 26, Endeavor. Number 25, Dungeon Lords. Dungeon Lords is a game about you're the bad guy of a dungeon and you're building, trying to build this very evil dungeon so that when the heroes come in, they won't be able to get through it and they will die. Much like Chaos in the Old World, that theme just doesn't really sound that interesting to me. But I've heard that the mechanics and the gameplay are very good and you know, my, a lot of my friends have recommended me give this one a try. I think the main thing actually that steers me away from playing this is the crazy red creature on the front cover. He... He's really a little bit spooky, and he's got a funny grin on his face. Is that a good reason not to try a game? Well, probably not. But the goofy artwork, I think it's a a bit of a turnoff, at least to me. Number 25 is Dungeon Lords. We go to number 24, which is Pandemic. Pandemic has become sort of the quintessential cooperative game sort of in the hobby right now. It's a game about different diseases represented by colored cubes starting to spread all over the world, and each player represents a person trying to fight those diseases. So you move around the map trying to get rid of those cubes before they overwhelm the world. I have played this game, and I rate it a 3, mostly because I'm not a big fan of straight cooperative games. When you're playing this game it almost seems like it's, it's almost a farce to be playing it multiplayer. Now for some people who want that sort of cooperative experience, they want two or three people, really want to talk things out, but there's really no reason why you need to have three or four people playing this game. It's, it's a single-player exercise. You are playing against the game. And I prefer cooperative games such as Shadows Over Camelot that has sort of that hidden element to keep the game interesting. The players versus the game is very well designed. It's well balanced and and tense and exciting. And I can see why people really like this game. But for myself, that cooperative aspect, I I just personally don't enjoy it. Number 24, Pandemic. Number 23, Age of Empires three. Age of Empires is a worker placement game where you're you're placing your workers in different areas on the board to do different tasks, either to discover new lands, to go colonize the new world, to acquire trade goods, to get special abilities. And so everybody has five guys to start the game. You go around in a circle and everybody chooses which action they want, having to prioritize what strategy you're going to go towards. An exploration strategy, a colonization strategy, an economic strategy, or a military strategy. I rate this game a 9. I love worker placement games and I think this is one of the best out there that there is. One of the reasons is that I just described there's there's four possible elements that you could go after. You can really go after playing a more military game, you can really go after just doing the expeditions. There's a lot of different routes to explore and you sort of have to gauge that depending on what you see the other players doing. Every turn you got to make 5 to 8 Really crucial decisions about when you're going to go where. And that's one of my favorite types of games. So, one of my favorite games. Number 23, Age of Empires 3. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Number 22, Railroad Tycoon. Railroad Tycoon is a game about building track in the United States and delivering cubes from city to city using that track. We should note that this game is now sold as Railways of the World. I rate this game an 8. This is a streamlined version of Age of Steam. I really love this game system. I, I don't think that this is the best implementation of the game, but it's really nice for variety's sake, or if you want to bring this out on players who don't want quite as cutthroat a game as Age of Steam. It has a few issues, especially with the base map that that comes with the game. The east is too strong. It has this card deck that you flip up, and people can get random victory points. And so the base map that comes with the game has, has a few gameplay issues, but it's still a strong game. It gets much improved with the expansion maps for Europe and England. A very good take on a very good game system. And it's probably the prettiest of the Age of Steam family of games, if that's something that's important to you. That's number 22, Railroad Tycoon. Number 21, Raw. Raw is a straight auction game, and it's very high on the list for being just a straight auction game. But the reason it is up that high is just because of its great gameplay. How Raw works is players take turns drawing a tile out of a bag to create a lot that players can bid on. Players can only win three lots during each round, and so deciding when to bid is very important. And when a player sees a set of tiles that they end up liking, they choose not to draw a tile, and they throw that raw token down on the board, and they go, raw, And that starts a once-around auction, which the person who bid on raw gets to bid on last. And the tiles that you're bidding on have four or five different categories of things that score with different combinations or with needing certain colors of these different categories, and so once people win a few auctions, you can tell that certain players want certain things, such as pharaohs, more than others. So you can use that to sort of read the other players. I've played this game many times. I rate it a 7. I like it a lot. I would play this game pretty frequently. In fact, I played it just a few days ago. Always enjoy it when we bring it out. It's a good time. Raw, another Reiner Knizia game, by the way, and that's number 21, Raw. Number 20 to number 11. Number 20, Imperial. We already talked about Imperial a little bit earlier because of Imperial 2030. And this is basically the same game. You are investing in countries, starting wars, having them fight for each other so that you can make money. I rate this and Imperial 2030 a 2, and that is strictly because of the theme. I have a hard time with the theme, as well as the particular gameplay of having wars, and what makes it even worse is you're having these battles, not for freedom, not for glory, um, but so that you can make some money. It uses that rondelle mechanism that a lot of people find very interesting about how you choose your actions based on where your person is on the you go, Your country will go around in a circle on this wheel, and based where you are on the wheel, you, you can only pick some of the actions that are straight ahead of you on the wheel unless you pay extra money. Some people find that very interesting. I do not. People always ask me, why don't you talk about Imperial? Are you going to do Imperial on how to play? The answer is no. I'm sorry. Not an Imperial fan, but a lot of other people are, and that's why it's number 20, Imperial. Number 19, Stone Age. Stone Age is a worker placement game about, you have a tribe of five cavemen, and you're placing them either to collect resources, or to build buildings with those resources to get points, or to get civilization cards, which you're trying to build sets of. I rate this game an 8. Stone Age is an excellent game. It's excellent as a gateway or next step game for people that you're trying to introduce into Euro games. It teaches them the worker placement mechanic, which has sort of become a staple of Euro games. And it has that dice rolling aspect, which is incorporated really well. If you place three guys in the forest, you get to roll three dice. The higher number you roll, the more wood resources you receive. It's a very intuitive mechanic and a lot of fun because you get to shake that big cup of dice and root for fives and sixes. So this is just a great middle-of-the-road Euro game. Stone Age. It is number one right now, and we are talking about the different categories. This is listed number one as a family game, and I think that's deservedly there. It's, it's really a great game, and I could see this being a lot of fun for mom and dad to play with two older kids. That's number 19, Stone Age. Number 18 is Shogun. Shogun is much like it's a redesigned version, but not very redesigned, just uses a different map of the system from Wallenstein by Dirk Hen, which I mentioned earlier. You have a map of Japan. You are assigned different provinces that you start in in Japan with your little cubes. And your cubes supply up and try to take over other people's territory. And you fight in this game, like I said, by throwing the cubes in the cube tower. I don't like war games, but I love Shogun. There's a lot of strategy, a lot of planning, and quite a bit of luck in throwing those cubes in the cube tower. I've always just had a blast when playing this game, even when I've lost terribly. I rate this game a 9, and if you haven't tried either Shogun or Wallenstein, definitely recommend you give it a go. Number 18, Shogun. Number 17, Demacher. Demacher is a game about German politics. Yes, really, German politics. This was one of the three games designed in the 80s that's in this top 50 list. The others were Civilization and 1830, and it recently got a reprinting, so it's it's out there and easy to get a copy of, unlike the other two games currently. The mechanics of this game are brilliant. I, I can hardly believe it was designed in 1986. There are four boards, for elections going on at the same time, and you go through a series of steps each turn to influence those four elections. There's only one going on currently, but you can also influence elections going on in the future. At the end of that first phase, you resolve the current election, and then you flip over the fifth election. So you can see those elections that are coming down down the road, and you have to decide how many resources to invest now, and what to invest in in the future. And there are so many other elements going on in this game. It's a lot more intuitive, and less complicated, I think, than people think. I rate this game a 7. I really like it. I think it's a classic. And I'd like to get it to the table at least once a year, just based on... The good gameplay and it's a very engaging experience. For a four-hour game, it won't feel like four hours. Trust me, that's a good one. There's a reason this 24-year-old board game is still number 17 on the top strategy games of all time. That's number 17, DMaka. Number 16, Goa by Rudiger Dorn. Goa has a few amazing mechanics that just combine to make this beautiful game. It starts with a unique auction mechanism. The auctions are once-around, and different players will place one of the tiles, like a cinnamon plantation, up for sale, and the other players will have a once-around auction to decide how much they want to pay for it. But the the system is designed on a 5x5 grid, and the way players can select these tiles to put up for auction is truly unique. And then it goes from there to a track system, where you have four different tracks of privileges you can get better at. You have to decide how to use your resources and which of these tracks to climb at. Do I want to get more money? Do I want to be able to get more special cards? Do I want to be able to get more colonists? And that track where people are climbing tracks to receive continually better privileges, I think was a very innovative game mechanic and left a huge stamp on game design. If you can't tell, I have played this and I love this game. I rated it a 9. Only problem is, it's currently out of print and somewhat hard to get, so let's let's hope for a reprint soon. If you get the opportunity to give this one a shot, don't turn it down. It's a great game. That's number 16, Goa. Next, number 15, The Princes of Florence. This is an auction resource management game in which you're bidding for different items and buying different items in order to fulfill the criteria on your artist card. For example, you might have a philosopher who might want a forest and a McDonald's. You'd have to buy the McDonald's building and freedom of religion, and if you had enough of those things, then you could play your Philosopher card. This is another mechanic that I think was very innovative, developing points towards meeting a certain objective, and had a huge impact on one of my favorite games, Colosseum. I've played a lot of Princes of Florence, and I rate it a 6. It's good, but it's very mathematical, and people who have played this game a lot can come up with the exact numbers that you should bid on certain items. I find that mathiness a bit of a put-off, and especially the last two turns, you really need to do a lot of calculations in your head if you want to totally efficiently play your cards the best that you can. It's just a little bit too mathy. It seems like this game needs a bit more randomness to actually make it better, and I I feel like this sort of system was much improved upon on Kramer and Lubke's Colosseum, but there's 100 people who would tell you different. That's why this is all the way up at number 15, Princes of Florence. Oh boy, here we are. Number 14, Age of Steam. Ah yeah. So Age of Steam, if you've ever listened before, know that this is my baby. I love Age of Steam. It's my favorite game. It's a game system that was developed from a lot of other games, and Age of Steam, I think, was the perfection of that system. And then, with Age of Steam in place, countless maps were designed that just made the system infinitely replayable. Well, I'm getting into Age of Steam love already. I haven't even told you what it's about. It's about building track and delivering goods. There's an auction in the beginning for some special abilities. You take turns building track. You take turns moving goods, and moving goods raises your income. In order to build anything, though, you need to go into debt. You need to issue shares. And getting out of that hole of issuing enough shares to make your income large enough is very challenging part of the early game. And then the late game gets intense as players try to maximize their victory points to beat each other out. Victory points are given by having the highest income subtracted from the amount of shares players have issued with a few points for track. I obviously rate this game a 10. For me, this is the pinnacle game experience. I love everything about it. It's interactive, a lot of difficult choices, a huge learning curve. Each time I play this game, I feel I get better and better. But I've talked a lot about this, so I think that's enough for now. Number 14, Age of Steam. Number 13, Race for the Galaxy. This is a very popular game that traces its roots from San Juan, which traces its roots from Puerto Rico, with basically the main mechanic of the game is players selecting roles, and that dictating what action they do for that turn, whether it's drawing cards or trading goods or so on. I have played this game a few times. I rate it a 6. I think it's alright. Uh, the space theme doesn't really feel that much there for me. I really didn't like San Juan. What I didn't like about San Juan was that the good players figured out with San Juan that you don't produce the crops and sell the crops. You just make money and build buildings. And so there seemed to be one dominant strategy in San Juan. Race for the Galaxy is definitely more balanced, uh, but it's definitely all about you know drawing the right cards and card combinations, as well as there's sort of that simultaneous guess that you're trying to guess what the other player will play, which I don't find really that fun. It's an alright game, but I don't—I haven't quite caught the Race for the Galaxy bug that a lot of people did when this game first came out. The upside of this game is you can play it really quickly with people who know the game. You get a good game in in probably 10 to 15 minutes. The downside is that... For new players learning the game, the game is all based in icons. And the icons aren't very clear. And so it takes a while to understand those. And to get to that speed where you're able to play this game rather quickly. That's number 13, Race for the Galaxy. Number 12 is the last game by Reiner Kanitzia on the list. And it's there the highest up because it's probably his best. And that is Tigris and Euphrates. Tigris is a tile lane game where you're trying to build up these kingdoms in order to score points. You're laying tiles in order to score one of four different colors of points. The object of the game is to have... The highest number of all four colors. Your score is the number of cubes you have the least of. So you want to try to score all four colors of points equally. So you're playing these tiles and you're building these kingdoms up, these groups of adjacent tiles. And eventually they run into the other players' groups of adjacent tiles. And conflict happens, which is resolved by laying tiles. And the end result is an excellent game. I rate this a 9. It is a great game that you could really dig into and play a lot. If you're sitting with a group of people who really know this game, you're going to lead to a very exciting, tense game as you see players build up these groups and these groups are colliding into each other. Just excellently designed. This one is a masterpiece. It's number 12, Tigris and Euphrates. Brings us to number 11, Steam. Steam is the latest incarnation of the Age of Steam system. It's uh, the end of a long story. If you want to hear it, go to How to Play Episode 4. But basically, it's a, another attempt to sort of streamline Age of Steam for those that wanted a little bit more friendlier game. The money calculations are a little bit easier. There are beginner rules. So it's a good game to learn the system. But to master it, you need to step up to Age of Steam. I rate this game an eight. It's a good game to get into the system, and it's the version you want to use if you have players who don't want a game that's quite as mathy or cutthroat as the original Age of Steam. So that's number 11, Steam. Number 10 to number 1. Number 10 is Wolfgang Kramer's masterpiece, El Grande. El Grande, standing proud after 15 years at number 10 on this list. Very impressive. As well it should be, it's a very strong area majority game. Very influential game. It's all about laying cubes in different areas of Spain, and the different regions are worth different points. There are three different rounds, and whoever has the most cubes in the different regions scores points. That's pretty much it. It has some very interesting mechanics in the way that you are allowed to play those cubes on the board. But basically, that's the general idea. And this area-majority mechanic has become very influential in a lot of modern games you've seen in the last 15 years. I rate this game an 8. I like this game. It doesn't blow me away. I'm not reaching to play it all the time. But if someone wants to play El Grande, i would happily play it any time. It doesn't hold sort of the same tension or excitement that I get from some of my most favorite games. And it's never a game I've gotten, wow, that was that was really fun, let's play that again. I've never gotten a real um, blown away reaction from anyone I've really introduced it to. But it's all around solid game. Number 10, El Grande. Number 9, Kalis. Kalis, you probably heard me talk a bit about Kalis. This was the game that made worker placement a household name. The idea is there's a lot of different buildings. You have six workers, and you pay one coin to place your worker on a building of your choice. Each of the different buildings gives a different special ability. So it's a game all about prioritization. Where is the best place for me to go first? Okay, where do I need to go now? And this came out in 2005, revolutionized the game industry. Everybody saw this mechanic as a great mechanic to build a game around. I rate this game a 10 It's my second favorite game after Age of Steam. I played a lot online, works really well online at BSW. You can also play it in real life, but because of the really strong learning curve, as in hundreds of games, playing this game with players of different skill levels can be a little bit challenging. But that's part of the reason that I enjoy it so much is because the depth is so deep. You can just keep getting better and better and better each time you play. That's number nine, Kalis. Number eight dominion dominion is a game all about building up your deck of cards you start with a deck of 10 cards seven money cards and three point cards and you draw five of those and and use them to buy more cards for your deck either more money or some buildings that give you special abilities or eventually you're going to get those victory point cards in your deck and you're going to build and build and build and eventually at the end of the game whoever bought the most victory point cards wins the game here it comes you ready I'm gonna tell you a secret I don't like Dominion there it is I said it send hate mail now I think the mechanic is neat I don't think the game is very fun one of the things that I have a major problem with in this game is the fun part of the game is buying those special buildings and and getting combinations of buildings but if you just buy money, it's very likely that you can beat a very strong player who's developing a masterful combination of cards. If I just take my copper to build silver to buy gold and then buy the big point card, big point card, big point card, big point card. And I may be ruining the game for some of you here, but this strategy will win among novice players about 95% of the time. Among experienced players that percentage goes down, but just that I know that that strategy is there really bothers me. I also don't like how it's strictly a multiplayer solitaire game. I know there's those soldier cards that kind of do stuff to your opponent and cards that try to make it interactive, but it's really not. It's a multiplayer solitaire experience, but I think the biggest reason I don't like Dominion is because I played a lot of Magic. And if you've played a lot of Magic, and you try to play Dominion, when you play Dominion, you just think, I think I'd rather be playing Magic right now. I think it's a very innovative game mechanic. I haven't liked any of the games that have come out with that mechanic yet, but I'm sure we'll see some great things to come from that deck-building mechanic. Dominion fans, I'm sure I will hear from you, because there are millions of them out there. Number eight is Dominion. Number seven, Brass. Grass is a game about the Industrial Revolution in England. You have five different kinds of tiles which represent businesses. And you buy these businesses and put them on the board. And you try to meet a certain condition to get these tiles to flip over, meaning that they're profitable. And you try to do that as much as you can because whenever you get a building to flip over, that scores you victory points. And they flip over by interacting with some of the other businesses on the board. It also relies a lot upon supply and demand. You want to build the kinds of businesses that other players aren't building and build in areas that other players are not. I rate Brass a 9. I love this game. The way that these mechanics interact together is just amazing. The way those cotton mills work with the ports, the way that the cubes build some of the later buildings, it's really brilliant. When I play this game, I think to myself, Mr. Wallace, how did you... Come up with this idea. How how possibly does one go about designing a game that is as complex yet as beautiful and well integrated as Brass? It's simply amazing. It's kind of a bear to learn and takes a play or two to get the hang of it, but it's really worth it. There might just be a podcast out there to help you learn this game. One of the best. If you haven't tried this one yet, you're missing out. Number seven, Brass. Number six, Lahav. Lahav is a game about getting goods and using those goods to buy buildings, and ships, and to produce more goods. So at the end of the game, you will be the wealthiest player, counting together the value of your buildings, your ships, and the money you have gotten from selling all these goods. The mechanics are mainly a worker placement mechanic, where each turn you're either choosing to use a building, or to take a supply of resources on the board. The mechanics of the game are very simple, but the game is mind-bendingly complex. I rate this game, I used to rate an 8, I'm going to up that to a 9, and it may go even higher. I like this game better than Agricola. When I first played this game, I just said, oh, this is just Agricola, but with more different kinds of goods and their cardboard chits instead of wooden cylinders. Yes, it is very similar to Agricola. It's worker placement, you're getting goods, and you're turning the goods into points. Agricola is a great game. Took it. He made some changes to it. Most notably, instead of just the cards coming out as they do in Agricola, the cards are available for players to purchase. So players have sort of control about the order in which different action spaces become available. You've also just got multiple paths of where you're going to go. In Agricola, you got to make food. You either decide to do that with animals or by baking bread. In Lahav, there's so many different paths and ways that you could go. You could start smoking fish, you could bake bread, you could sell cattle, you could sell some leather for money, you can buy ships. There's just a lot of different avenues to go down. and It makes the game experience very different each time you play it. And the decisions you have to make in Lahav are just enormous. I mean, sometimes you'll have 40 different choices on what you could do on your turn. For some, this might get a bit overwhelming, but if you want a deep, Heavy, hard game that's a lot of fun. Try out number six, Lahav, Which brings us to number five, Power Grid. Power Grid is a game about setting up a network of electricity and building power plants. It's done in several steps. You're buying your power plants. You're buying your fuel on a supply track on the board. You're developing a network on a map of the particular country that you're using. And you are operating your power plants. Dirty Secrets revealed number two. I don't like Power Grid. What don't I like about Power Grid? Power Grid is all a game about timing. It's about figuring out when to go for it and when to just sit there and wait and play possum. And that's the part I don't like about the game. This game penalizes you strongly if you decide to go out ahead and try to build a lot of power plants, and build a lot of cities in which to power those power plants. If you really want to go for it, then you're put at a distinct disadvantage from the other players. So there's a lot of this, everybody's kind of just sitting and waiting, people build. There's another phase of the game, about the middle of the game, where once somebody builds a certain number of cities, that opens up more spots on the board for the rest of the players. But whoever triggers that is going to get to go last in that round. So there's this part in the mid-game where everybody sits there and waits for somebody else to build that number of cities that will move the game on to the next phase of the game. Then you've got the winning condition of the game. The winner is the player who powers the most on a given turn where somebody builds to a certain number of cities. So it's this arbitrary end turn, and nobody knows when it's really going to happen, and everybody's trying to orchestrate it so that they can finish the game at a certain time. It's all of that, that cat and mouse part of the game that I just don't care for. That I'm not going to build more cities because then I'll be ahead, and then I get penalized by the game. The I'm not going to move the game forward because then I'll just lose. Or trying to figure out or manipulate when the game is going to end. All of those parts of the game I don't really like. It makes the game feel a lot more abstract to me. It makes me feel not that I'm trying to build power plants and power cities, but playing a board game and trying to manipulate a system. So there it is. That's why I don't like Power Grid. It's one of the most popular games at Board Game Geek. So I'm sure I'll hear why I'm wrong, but there it is. That's number five, Power Grid. This brings us to number four, Twilight Struggle. This is a game in the same vein of 1960, which is it's a two-player game and it's a card-driven game where players are playing cards to get influence in different areas. The theme of this game is the Cold War, and you have America against Russia fighting for influence in the different areas of the world. This is the highest game on the list that I have not played. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say I've never played Twilight Struggle, as I know it's a lot of people's favorite games. But I've played Campaign Manager 2008. It's probably pretty much the same thing, right? Okay, probably not. So, someone, somebody out there at some point, is going to volunteer to teach me and and play Twilight Struggle. One of the things that keeps me from playing it is, you know, in our game groups, we don't play a lot of two-player games. Most people want to play four- or five-player games, and I agree. I'm not not really a big fan of playing two-player games except with my wife, and a two-hour game about the Cold War is probably not a game my wife and I are going to play anytime soon. If you enjoy two-player games, if you like that theme, you should definitely give this one a shot, though. Number four, Twilight Struggle. Number three, Through the Ages, a story of civilization. This is a card-based civilization game. It's one of those many games that tried to take what civilization did in 12 hours and try to boil it down to something more reasonable, like three or four hours. It's a card-based game. You're getting cards from decks that improve throughout the game to make your civilization, which is just a group of these cards, stronger and stronger and more efficient. There's a lot of different tracks you have to improve on, and one of these tracks is ideas. You have to get enough ideas to invent more things, and you need to be strong enough in the military aspect. I've been able to play this a few times. I rate the game A6. I enjoyed the game, but I'm not rushing to pick it up or play it again anytime soon. It has that multiplayer solitaire criticism, which I think is a very valid one. Players take their turns, and I joked about this being called Pharmacy the Game, because you get these cards, and you put all these little wooden tokens on the cards to represent where you have resources, and these little wooden pieces look exactly like pills and you have to spend a few minutes maybe five minutes manipulating all these different resources around to buy different things and everybody's just sitting there watching you move all your little pieces around about all right for your first action you're gonna spend these and you're just moving these little wooden discs all around and nobody's really that interested in what each other is doing. So there's quite a bit of downtime as you're waiting for each player to do this on their turn. Which is, I think, why most people recommend you play this with three. Then it has the military aspect. And the way with the military works is you have to keep your military at a certain level. And if you don't, then it makes it very easy for people to play negative cards against you. One of the problems with this system is that somebody who falls behind early can become the victim of multiple military attacks as they just become sort of this minnow in the water and they just get pounded on over and over again. Though I thought the way that the the card system works, it's a pretty clever system, and it's a lot of fun to see your civilization go from getting the primitive advances and working their way up and getting the different leaders, getting Julius Caesar and getting Gandhi at the end. It does a pretty good job of boiling down this system. It does take a while to learn. And your turns can take quite a bit, especially figuring out the system of how those little tokens move on the card to allocate your resources. You need to have players who will play their turns in a reasonable manner. Otherwise, it claims three to four hours, but when you're first learning or if you play the slower players, this can easily turn out to be a six to eight hour experience. And one of my main criticism is just the lack of real interaction. As my friend Rob joked about this game, he said, You know, this would make a really good computer game, but it's not a bad board game either. And that's number three, Through the Ages. And we get to the two big boys. Number two, Agricola. Agricola is a worker placement game that can trace its origins back to Kalos. It uses a very unique theme of farming, and you're placing your workers in order to accomplish a lot of different goals. You want to grow your family. You have to feed your family, either through raising animals and cooking them, or growing grain and cooking it into bread. And eventually you have to grow your house and remodel your house as well. I rate Agricola a 9. It's a very solid game. It has a lot of things that I love in my favorite games, which is a lot of quick, difficult decisions, a strong learning curve, and a well-integrated theme. I've played this game quite a bit, and I look forward to playing it more. I found that the two-player game doesn't work quite as well as a three or four-player game. I actually gave it a shot playing a solo game, and I had a good time with that as well. If you haven't done that, it's a more fun experience than you may think. The 14 cards that you're given at the beginning of the game is sort of a positive and a negative element for me. First of all, it's sort of a hard element when you're first teaching the game. You can, of course, leave those out. But also everybody has to sit and read their cards. The other problem I have with it is just the wild differentiation in strength in some of the cards. People can get particularly strong cards or a strong combination of cards. And if you have a group of strong players, that player who has the much stronger cards is going to win every time. And you have some cards in the game that no one in their right mind should ever possibly use. Because of this, I'd really like to get to playing Agricola with a draft at the beginning. I haven't had a chance to do that yet. It is a fantastic game. It, it deserves to be as high as it is. Number two, Agricola. And finally, number one, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico is a game about building buildings and shipping goods. You acquire plantations to get goods and you use those goods to either sell them to get money or ship them on the boat to earn points. And you're also trying to get money so that you can use those to buy buildings. The buildings give you victory points and give you more special abilities. The main mechanic with which you play the game is a role selection mechanic, which was incredibly innovative in the world of board games. I pick the role, says we're building buildings, and we all get a turn to build buildings. The next person picks the captain, and we all get to ship goods. So the players get to decide the format of the turn. It's a very innovative and important mechanic. I rate this game a 9. That mechanic alone makes for a fantastic game, and a game you can play hundreds of times to get better and better at. Unfortunately, because the game doesn't change that much from one game to another, players can get real good at developing strategies for which buildings they're going to buy early and in the mid-game, strategies that they can apply to almost every game that they play of Puerto Rico. So it is a game that has the potential to get played out. If you've never played the game, you have a group that hasn't really gotten a lot of plays of Puerto Rico in, then you should go through the ride. It's a, it's a great experience to go through. It's a great game to really invest in and, and get better at. And it's still a really fun game if you have players of equal skill level. If you have players of varying skill level, it becomes not quite as much of a fun game, which is one of the major criticisms against the game. But this game shook up the board game world. Its impact is still being felt today. And you can play pull this game out with your game group, and it's still a ton of fun. And I think people are going to be playing this years and years down the road. Of course, the big debate is, what game deserves to be number one, Agricola or Puerto Rico? People have devoted articles, tons of shouting matches back and forth, back and forth. You know, Ryan, what's your opinion? You're probably dying to know. Who who do I think should be number one? Well, that's easy. Age of Steam. So there you go. Those are the top 50 games as ranked by the users of BoardGameGeek and my opinions of them. I hope you enjoyed that. If you did, let me know. I might enjoy doing a look back once again at the top 50 next year and see what has changed. I'd like to see what games have changed in the list and if anything has changed about my own opinions about these games. That's going to about do it for this episode. We will have another episode of A Great Heavy Game for episode number 17 coming up in July, so look forward to that. I'm just going to add in an update here. I recorded this before Origins and then wrapping it up after Origins. I'm back from Origins. I had a great time. I got to meet a lot of fellow podcasters, a lot of you listeners. It was great to meet you. And lucky for you, as promised, I have some of these beautiful How to Play t-shirts still available. They're a nice navy color with a white imprint. At the top they say, learn, teach, and play great games. How to play. I think they turned out really well. If you'd like to see what they look like, you can see a picture of them at the guild. This is a great incentive for you if you've thought about donating and just haven't gotten around to it yet. If you place a donation of at least $20 at the website www.howtoplaypodcast.com, there's a PayPal button there. And if you place your donation, just write in the notes what size you'd like, make sure your address is included, and I will ship one off to you post haste. If you would like a t-shirt, but you don't live in the States, I hope you would consider donating more in order to cover the shipping costs for me. I would ask a minimum $25 donation for international shipping. You can wear it at game nights or conventions, and spread the news about the How to Play podcast. The sizes I have currently available are Extra Large and Extra Extra Large, Supplies are limited of each of these sizes, so don't delay. Make your donation today. If you've donated previously to the show and would like one, just send me a note and I will send one out to you. And if you want a smaller size t-shirt, like a large or a medium, just run them through the wash they're 50% cotton and, you know, eventually they'll be the right size. But for now, for episode D on the Top 50 Strategy Games, this has been Ryan Sturm for the How to Play podcast.
1: One, two, three, four. This has been Ryan Stern for the How to Play podcast. How to Play is written, recorded, edited, produced, promoted, and financed by Ryan Stern. How to Play is a one man, independent podcast not affiliated with any game vendor or game company. If you like How to Play podcast, I count on you to support it. You can help out by joining and participating in the guild, donating financially to the show, writing reviews or rating the show on iTunes, help talk up the show in your game group or on the forums at BoardGameGeek, and even just thumb announcements of new episodes. We have no contests, no gimmicks, no advertisements, no plugs to game websites or companies. All of the show's content is free of all bias, save for one, my own. And that is due to your own continuing support please consider supporting the show in some way today. i love to hear feedback from you, and I can be contacted through our discussion forum on the Guild at BoardGameGeek, or I can be emailed at howtoplaypodcast at msn.com. This podcast's home on the web is www.howtoplaypodcast.com. Thanks again, everybody, and until next time, I hope you will learn, teach, and play great games.